Joining us today on Dialogos Radio in the Dialogos interview series is Deborah Berman-Santana, recently retired professor of geography and ethnic studies at Mills College in Oakland, California. Deborah will speak to us about the latest economic and political developments in Puerto Rico, which is facing an economic crisis similar to that in Greece, and she will discuss the similarities that she has seen between Puerto Rico and Greece after spending some time in Greece recently. Deborah, welcome to our program today. Thank you. Getting us started, describe for us the history of the economic exploitation of Puerto Rico. What has the impact of colonialism been on Puerto Rico's economic viability? Well, colonies exist so that the colonizer will benefit economically and politically. Since the United States invaded and occupied Puerto Rico in 1898, it has extracted profit in numerous ways. First, through converting it into a sugar colony. Then after World War II, Puerto Rico was transformed through Operation Bootstrap into a special economic zone to benefit U.S. corporations under the guise of development via export-led industrialization. As a captive market, Puerto Rico also became home to, for example, the most Walmarts per square meter in the world. Uh, finally, Puerto Rico's colonial neither U.S. state nor independent state political status allowed the U.S. bond market to give special exemptions to investors, which has brought Puerto Rico to its current debt crisis. Now, during the 1930s, the anti-imperialist congressman Vito Marcantonio sponsored a study which revealed that since 1898, U.S. corporations had extracted as much as $400 billion in profits from Puerto Rico. And recently, independent researchers in Puerto Rico have estimated that since the 1950s, more than half a trillion dollars has been extracted from Puerto Rico. Both estimates encompass the free usage of Puerto Rican resources and the restriction via U.S. cabotage laws requiring all imports and exports to use U.S. merchant marine ships and U.S. crews. So it would not be an exaggeration to say that the United States has taken more than a trillion dollars away from its colony, which certainly dwarfs Puerto Rico's $73 billion public debt. We are speaking with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos interview series. And Deborah, how did this ongoing exploitation contribute to the present-day debt crisis in Puerto Rico? And what has been the role of Washington, Wall Street, and the so-called vulture funds in perpetuating this crisis? Well, with the eventual elimination of industrial tax incentives in Puerto Rico beginning in the 1990s, Puerto Rico's governments increasingly looked to loans to balance its budget and continue practices of rewarding, rewarding uh, political cronies with contracts uh, for large infrastructure projects. Subsequently, President Clinton's elimination of the Glass-Steagall Act allowed for investment bankers to increasingly engage in bond market speculation. Puerto Rico received triple exemption because of its colonial status, which meant that every pension fund and every municipal and state government, among others, bought Puerto Rico bonds, ignoring the fact that its economy began shrinking once the special industrial exemptions were completely eliminated in 2006. Now, the election of a protege of the Koch brothers, Luis Fortunio, as Puerto Rico's governor in 2008 resulted in a bitter medicine law that um, el eliminated tens of thousands of public jobs, which accelerated the descent of the economic recession into a depression. By 2011, the major credit agencies began degrading Puerto Rico's ratings, 
with the result that it increasingly resorted to short-term high-interest loans similar to payday loans. Bondholders increasingly unloaded their Puerto Rico bonds in the secondary bond market, which were then swooped up by vulture funders such as Paul Singer and John Paulson, often at 10 to 20% of the bond's value. Today, these vulture funders possess up to 50% of Puerto Rico's public debt and are the creditors who are the least willing to renegotiate the terms of the loans. They have been the major lobbyists so far for, for the congressional law, which was known as PROMESA, that recently became law. PROMESA has been touted by some as a bailout for Puerto Rico. What does this bill actually mean for Puerto Rico law, in your view, and what is the significance of the acronym that was used, PROMESA? Uh, the, lo- the new law, which President Obama signed on June 30th, is entitled the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act, or PROMESA. In Puerto Rican popular parlance, a PROMESA is a pledge that someone makes when dealing with a family crisis. The person promises to do something for the community if the crisis is resolved. Often this is an annual fiesta, including traditional music, food, and drink, and it may last for decades. That the U.S. Congress would give this name to a law that strips away any pretense of self-government has caused a tremendous amount of resentment in Puerto Rico. This law allows President Obama to appoint a seven-member board paid for by the Puerto Rican people, which will take control of the budget, eliminate environmental laws, dismiss public employees, abolish public agencies, and cut minimum wage by half for young workers, close schools and hospitals, increase utility bills, and cut pensions. These measures are justified by the priority of making payments on the public debt. There is no provision for economic development or for restructuring the public debt, let alone canceling it. There is no acknowledgement that such measures are likely to greatly increase emigration of working-age Puerto Ricans while severely deteriorating the quality of life for those who remain. And any bailout that might occur as a result seems directed only at the Wall Street vultures, who now control most of the debt. Now, on August 31st, President Obama announced the names of the members of the Junta. Four were born in Puerto Rico. Two of those were in the governments of the the former Puerto Rican governor, Fortunio. And one of them, Carlos Caco Garcia, and his nickname is used in Puerto Rico to refer to criminals, was directly involved in the bitter medicine law of 2009 that began massive layoffs of public employees and was also responsible for billions of dollars of short maturity bonds that have now virtually bankrupted the Government Development Bank. Now, were it not for such actions, it's possible that the PROMESA law would not have been enacted. So was he named to cover up the tracks of his patrons? Certainly, he was not chosen for physical responsibility. And among the other three junta members is Andrew Biggs, who is known for crusading in favor of privatizing Social Security and other public pension funds. So it's not difficult to imagine what role he will likely play in Puerto Rico. 
We are on the air with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series. And Deborah, there's a lot that has been written about the economic crisis in Puerto Rico recently, including a report by the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt, CDTM, which has also written about the Greek debt in the past as well. What do you make of these reports, and were there any Puerto Rican economists that were given the opportunity to provide their own input into these reports? Well, CADTM's article was odd in that there did not appear to be any effort to read up or try to understand Puerto Rico, but simply to use information from Europe and elsewhere and change names where needed. For example, it referred to Puerto Rico as a member of the Commonwealth of the United States, an entity that does not exist, unlike, for example, the British Commonwealth. Puerto Rico is actually defined by the United States as a territory belonging to, but not a part of the United States with not a single iota of sovereignty. A White House report on Puerto Rico in 2006 claimed that the U.S. could give Puerto Rico away to another country should it choose to do so. And the term Commonwealth is used for Puerto Rico to give the illusion that Puerto Rico achieved some form of self-governance in the in the United Nations, removing it from their list of colonies. Now, there has been a movement to get Puerto Rico reinstated to that list for decades. Another weakness of CADTM's analysis was his use of secondary sources of statistics about Puerto Rico, such as the Pew Foundation, instead of Puerto Rico's own government or any of several Puerto Rican independent research institutes. Perhaps most egregious of all is that it doesn't mentioned the fact that as a colony with no sovereignty, all of Puerto Rico's public debt may be considered illegal. One might presume that an international organization dedicated to cancellation of debt would know that it was a successful insistence by the United States in 1898 that Cuba did not need to pay any of its colonial debt because it was contracted by Spain. That helped shape the concept of odious debt. I am not sure of the, of the purpose of the CA. DTM article, and I hesitate to quote a report other than to jump on the Puerto Rico misinformation bandwagon. In what ways has the colonial administration of Puerto Rico made the island economically dependent on the United States, and how does this dependency impact the national psyche of Puerto Ricans? There used to be a geography book written by a North American named Muller, which was the first textbook studied in all Puerto Rican schools. The first sentence read, Puerto Rico is a small, overpopulated, poor island, lacking in natural resources, which cannot survive without the United States. Puerto Rico has served in a laborator- as a laboratory for generations of U.S. academics, most of whom were awarded government and foundational grants to prove that Puerto Rico and its people were geologically, biologically, and socially inferior. Their claims were often absurd such as that Puerto Ricans were afraid of the sea and that there are hardly any fish in the surrounding Caribbean, both of which could be easily disproved, or that somehow Puerto Rico's rich soils could not feed the population, which was not the case until most arable land was diverted to sugarcane and then later covered in cement for the industrialization strategy. Puerto Ricans were constantly told to look for the United States for all sources of innovations and progress and warned that independence would be economically and socially disastrous. There's a favorite slogan here, where would we be without her alongside the U.S. flag? Never mind that all of the disastrous economic and social consequences about which we were warned have occurred 
precisely because of our colonial relationship to the United States. So you simply cannot extract the amount of profits from a country that the United States has taken from Puerto Rico, plus restrict Puerto Rico's ability to protect its own resources or capital and expect to have a positive economic result. We are speaking with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series. And Deborah, describe for us the political system of Puerto Rico, the major political parties, and to what extent the island enjoys any degree of self-governance. Well, for the first 50 years after the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico, the president named the governor and most directors of government agencies. Since the establishment of the Associated Free State, or Commonwealth, in 1952, Puerto Rico has elected its own governor and legislature, as well as a non-voting representative to the U.S. Congress. Elections are held every four years, and there are two majority parties. Uh, One is the pro-statehood New Progressive Party, or PNP, and the popular Democratic Party, PPD, which favors the current status with greater autonomy. The Puerto Rican Independence Party, known as PIP, once was the second largest party, but it's been relegated by decades of political repression and extreme factionalism among pro-independence and left organizations to the status of a very small party that barely manages to elect some representatives at municipal and island-wide levels. There is also a Puerto Rican court system, which uses Spanish and is based on Roman law, as is true of Latin American countries which, however, is subordinate to the English-only U.S. federal court located in the U.S. federal building in San Juan, which is a concrete reinforced stronghold that is the official seat of U.S. colonial rule. The Puerto Rican government has not had the power to truly protect local businesses against product dumping from U.S. economy uh, companies, nor to make economic treaties with other countries without U.S. approval. However, it has had control over its budget and taxes, which both majority parties have used to curry political favor with contractors and corporate sponsors. This has encouraged a culture of corruption, which would appear to confirm the dominant narrative that Puerto Ricans lack the capacity to properly govern themselves. But at no time since 1898 has any Puerto Rican government been able to exercise sovereign decision-making against the wishes of Washington. That the so-called Commonwealth did not change its status was confirmed by two rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court this last June, one of which dealt with Puerto Rico's exemption from use of Chapter 9 bankruptcy, while at the same time nixing its government's attempt to write its own bankruptcy law. Briefly, the Supreme Court affirmed that Puerto Rico lacked even the limited sovereignty that a U.S. Indian tribe might might possess, and that Puerto Rico's constitution had about as much validity as the Puerto Rican peso had after the U.S. takeover. In addition, President Obama said that there is no alternative to the PROMESA bill and that the imposition of a junta, which of course means that the government, Puerto Rico's elected government laws and constitution really mean nothing. What do you make of the summertime visit of presidential candidate Bernie Sanders to Puerto Rico, and what came out of this visit? Well, Senator Sanders' primary campaign strategy in the United States was to in- attract independent voters to vote for him in the primaries. 
Now, even though Puerto Ricans and other residents of U.S. colonies do not vote for president and have no voting representation in Congress, they do have delegates to the Democratic and Republican conventions, and so they usually do hold primaries. By far the largest of the colonies in terms of population is Puerto Rico. And so Sanders' strategy was to encourage independentistas who support independence and who do not vote in U.S. primaries to vote for him. In his congressional career, Sanders had never appeared to be aware of Puerto Rico's existence. Yet suddenly he was promoted as a savior who had decolonized Puerto Rico, all based upon his criticism of Wall Street and his supposed reputation as a radical leftist. Now, Sanders never could bring himself to mention the C word, colony, when speaking about his country's relationship with Puerto Rico. More than once he referred to Puerto Rico as a protectorate. And his harshest words accused Washington of using the PROMESA bill to, quote, treat Puerto Rico as a colony, without, of course, admitting that Puerto Rico already is a colony. Unfortunately, colonies foster colonized mentalities. So Sanders did manage to divide independentistas yet again, when what is most needed at this time is unity. Sanders introduced an alternative bill to PROMESA in the Senate, only after PROMESA had already been approved by the House of Representatives and was endorsed by Obama, so that his bill did not even get a proper hearing. The proposed bill itself was a hodgepodge of measures that may have been marginally better in economic terms than PROMESA, but it also included a section on holding yet another referendum on on political status. Though at least five have already been held, Now, this bill provided detailed instructions on how to fast-track statehood, should that option win, but it had nothing about U.S. responsibility for ensuring free determination and indemnification for eventual independence. And I should also add that many U.S. politicians, from George Bush and Ted Kennedy to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, have made extravagant promises while campaigning for Puerto Rican delegates to their party's conventions. So in sum, Sanders used Puerto Rico exactly as have other U.S. politicians before him. We are on the air with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series. And Deborah, how is the issue of independence viewed in Puerto Rico today, and how has Washington typically responded to the independence movement? Well, there have been independence movements in Puerto Rico ever since the 19th century when Spain was still the colonial power. Since the 1898 invasion, Washington has combined violent repression of independence groups with selective co-option of broad sectors of Puerto Rican society using, for example, church officials and entrepreneurs, politicians and civil society leaders to divide Puerto Ricans against each other while promoting Uncle Sam as the benefactor. Neighbors were paid to spy and report on every aspect of the lives of independent supporters, while many lost their jobs or were expelled from the university. Leaders were often arrested on a variety of charges, and many served long prison sentences. And not even leaving Puerto Rico for the diaspora exempted them for uh, uh, per- persecution. For example, Oscar Lopez Rivera is currently imprisoned, having served 35 years of a 55-year sentence for, quote, seditious conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government and its territories, 
in other words, for struggling for Puerto Rican independence. Now, Oscar grew up in Chicago, and he has not been accused or convicted of any violent act. Yet his refusal to defend himself in a U.S. criminal court and his demand that he be tried as a political prisoner in an international tribunal helped lead to such a disproportionately long sentence. There is a, currently an international campaign to pressure uh, President Obama to release Oscar from prison before the president leaves office. Many countries, including Greece, have held events in support, and important figures such as uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and Uruguay's president, Pepe Mojica, have advocated directly for his release. And in Puerto Rico, support is massive and includes all political and social sectors. Now, Puerto Ricans as a whole do not support independence, at least not openly, because they have been taught that Puerto Rico has no choice but to be associated with the United States, either as a state or in some kind of autonomous association. Yet every single environmental social, political, and cultural struggle and campaign has had independent supporters as key members. Puerto Rican pride and self-identification with the Puerto Rican nationality is much broader than open support for independence. It's obvious in sports, in music, in cultural celebrations, even in jokes and in everyday life. Even many statehood supporters will often refer to Puerto Rico as their nation, as contradictory as that may sound to outsiders, especially given the recent actions of the United States government and the realization by many Puerto Ricans that Uncle Sam does not have their best interests in mind, it would be interesting to see if independence support would increase should there be a serious proposal that includes indemnification by the U.S. for over a century of colonial rule. The PROMESA bill has triggered a wave of demonstrations in Puerto Rico all throughout the summer months, which are continuing up until now. How have these protests taken shape? Well, as soon as Obama signed the bill on on June 30th, a number of organizations set up a civil disobedience encampment in front of the main entrance to the federal building in San Juan. Now, this uh, tactic of encampment is a very common feature in activism in Puerto Rico. It serves as a semi-permanent focus for education, organizing, and resistance. It's been used to block environmentally dangerous projects, as well as also the U.S. Navy's former bombing range on Vieques Island, which was a successful struggle. The encampment in front of the federal building has been continuously occupied since the end of June, and it is a focus for seminars, cultural events, picketing, and community building. And for now, the Puerto Rican police have said they do not plan to remove the protesters, although federal agents often conduct provocative actions, such as blasting diesel generators near the tents and walking bomb-sniffing dogs throughout the encampment. Now, on August 31st, uh, just a very, very short time ago, there were massive protests in which successfully blocked a planned conference by the Colonial Chamber of Commerce to promote business opportunities under PROMESA. It was very inspiring to see union members students, women's groups, and others joined together to resist the attempts of opportunists to profit from a dictatorial imposition. The most dramatic moment came when hundreds of riot police tried to force the protesters out of the street, but they were pushed back by people of of all ages, despite batons, pepper spray, and brute force. 
Then several days later, protesters forced the largest Walmart in Puerto Rico to close early. This took place on Labor Day, which was named in Puerto Rico Unemployment Day, since Walmart has destroyed thousands of local businesses. Now, besides the fact that there are more Walmarts per square meter in Puerto Rico than anywhere else, it also receives government incentives, and they recently went to federal court to validate a refusal to pay a reasonable amount of taxes to Puerto Rico. Now, uh, other protests include massive and broad-based movements against the plan by the U.S. government to use military planes to fumigate all of Puerto Rico with dangerous pesticides, supposedly to kill mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus. To this are added a large number of ongoing protests and campaigns, all of which now refer to the coming junta as possibly complicating even more the scenario. Activists in the large Puerto Rican diaspora also hold seminars and stage protests, and many times in coordination with the groups in Puerto Rico. Now, of course, most Puerto Ricans are not protesters, and they try to go about their daily lives while listening with alarm, resignation, or both to the news. Puerto Rican activist organizations face many challenges as they try to work through decades-long factionalism and develop more effective ways to educate the public. Most of all, I think the challenge is not to burn out and to convince others that there's hope. We are speaking with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series. And Deborah, describe the difficulties in forming alliances in Puerto Rico today within this fractured and divided political landscape that you have described. Well, pro-independence organizations in Puerto Rico have always suffered from severe repression, including efforts by the colonizers, both Spain and the United States, to infiltrate and divide them. Some of the earliest campaigns by the FBI upon its establishment in 1908 included the criminalization and repression of independence activism in Puerto Rico, and such activities continue today. There's a recent example uh, where the FBI grabbed well-known activists in the street and forced them to give DNA samples for supposed ongoing terrorism investigations. Now, this operation included grabbing activists who had previously been imprisoned and for whom the U.S. government would already have had DNA samples. So this is just one example of a century-long campaign of repression that has included murders, disappearances, wrong incarceration, blacklisting, and spying. The Puerto Rican government also has been complicit in the criminalization of independence, including creating discord among activists and organizations and, of course, blacklisting. But we cannot simply blame outside forces for the divided state of independence and left activism. Besides the personal antagonisms, and many of which are due to the same societal ills that afflict all leftist organizations, such as sexism, there are also ideological ex- disputes, such as the roles of nationalism and socialism in colonial struggles. One new political party in Puerto Rico, for example, declines to take a position on Puerto Rican political status, even though most of its leaders have been identified as independentistas. They expect that by doing so, they can attract pro-statehood workers to vote for them although I would argue that it would actually repel more statehood supporters because they would be seen as dishonest. Now, of course, this divides the votes of those who no longer want to vote for the two majority parties. The Puerto Rican Independence Party is running a full slate of candidates and is trying to position itself as the alternative. 
but they in the past have also been very sectarian and they have alienated many independentistas. But despite such divisions, we have seen many activities that include representatives of both parties as well as other independents and left organizations. And this indicates to me that many people do understand that somehow we need to overcome our divisions even if we can't overcome our disagreements. Puerto Rico has often been described as the Greece of the Caribbean. You have had the opportunity to visit Greece twice in the past year, including this past summer. How similar are the crises in the two nations, in your view? Well, I would say they are strikingly similar. And in fact, that the same playbook is being used in both, comp- in both countries, and despite the differences between the two countries. For example, the acronym TINA. There is no alternative to continued policies of austerity, to privatization, and the increased taxes in order to pay off an unsustainable public debt is constantly repeated in both places, as is the myth that there is no plan B, and that political independence for both um, would be disastrous. And of course, in Greece's case, that would be leading the European Union and leaving the Eurozone. That would be disastrous. As if United States and European Union rule is not already a disaster. In Greece, in, in, in addition, there is a proposal currently for an eight-member junta, the control fiscal, a, f- a fiscal control board named by the EU, which must approve and may even write laws that the Greek government must implement, such as automatic budget cuts and further privatizations. Now, while as a classic colony, Puerto Rico cannot officially deal with the IMF, in practice, the, Pro- the PROMESA bill follows the IMF playbook, as was prescribed by former IMF officials who are hired by the Puerto Rican government, as ordered by their masters in Washington, to produce a report with recommendations with dealing, uh, for dealing with the debt crisis. In addition, you also see vulture capitalists, such as Paul Singer and John Paulson, to name two, swooping into Greece and Puerto Rico to buy up assets, assets such as banks and land, plus debt at a discount. So the fact that Puerto Rico is a classic colony actually makes the problems of our lack of sovereignty much clearer. Greece, of course, is still officially an independent country. So for some people, its de facto colonial status may not be quite as clear. Also, the problem of equating national sovereignty with Fascism is particularly acute in Greece as it's in a European country. In Puerto Rico, we have some of that confusion, but it's perhaps not as strong since in general in Latin America, including in Puerto Rico, uh, there is a tradition of understanding the necessity for national sovereignty as part of an anti-colonial struggle. We are on the air with Professor Deborah Berman-Santana here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series. And Deborah, in your estimation, what is the best solution for Puerto Rico and its people, economically and politically? Well, the international community recognizes the right of all peoples to self-determination, including freely and unilaterally choosing their political status. There are three recognized statuses. First, union with another independent state under conditions of equality. Second, association with another state with the right to unilaterally change that status and independence. Now, looking at the United States, the United States has historically added new states only whose native populations were reduced to a small and powerless minority. 
the th- it has three associated republics, the Associated Republics of Micronesia, but they complain of a lack of sovereignty and the lack of unwillingness of the United States to renegotiate their compacts. There's also zero interest in the United States to add a new state, which would be comprised of Spanish-speaking people with a distinctly different culture and which additionally has a per capita income, which is less than half that of Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the United States. So I believe that political independence represents the only possibility for Puerto Rico to exercise its sovereignty. And it should be accomplished, and I think also with international pressure, as part of a negotiation that includes indemnification for more than a century of colonial exploitation. Certainly, uh, Puerto Rico's colonial debt belongs to the colonizer. So far from seeing independence as separation, as some people would claim, I would argue that it actually opens up Puerto Rico to the rest of the world, instead of being chained behind the iron curtain of U.S. rule. In Latin America, there is a saying that its independence will not be complete without Puerto Rico. And I believe that time is now. Before wrapping up, do you have any message that you would like to share with our listeners and with the Greek people? I would say that uh, I appreciate this solidarity uh, of the people in Greece, uh, much solidarity and much understanding uh, that they showed towards Puerto Rico and when, when, during my visits there. I would encourage the people in Greece to, to not give up hope and to not uh, accept the, the notion that there is no alternative to the ongoing loss of sovereignty and the ongoing economic deterioration that, that you're facing. Uh, there's always hope, but uh, also love of country is not necessarily fascist. Uh, I have to say that here in Puerto Rico as well. And uh, basically, uh, free people in free countries their uh, individual freedom and freedom of peoples goes together. I don't think you can se- separate one from the other. And uh, I have much love uh, for the people of Greece and for uh, all people of, uh, in solidarity everywhere. Uh, Viva Puerto Rico Libre. Well, Deborah, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos Interview Series, and for sharing with us your experiences from both Puerto Rico and Greece. Thank you very much.